weird happens, just like that, out of the blue. Broad daylight, the dark of night, it doesn't matter. Manna fell from heaven, in the middle of a desert. At a difficult time in his life, Jack, our main player here, met an interesting and in some ways transformative individual. Jack had just relocated with his little family to a college town in the Midwest. It was late October, windy and cold, a portent of winter practicing her lines in the wings. We offer you Ghost. I found myself driving on this inky black road through my least favorite, you might call it seedy, part of town. Not that I mind seedy. I grew up in a neighborhood that would fit that description very nicely. A place like this would usually ping a familiar and comfortable vibe, but not East Harbor Lane. Something about it got to me. Hard to understand why it affected me so intensely and negatively. I remember the first time we drove on this road. I literally had a visceral reaction. Not a pucker kind of thing, but more like an oblique revulsion. It gave me a chill. Whatever the reason, I hated this godforsaken, overgrown, trash-strewn thoroughfare. The worst piece was by the approach to the harbor bridge, with its refuse-strewn marshes on each side of the approach. Forlorn, distant, unwelcoming. I typically would have gone out of my way to avoid it, but tonight, I think my mood led me here. The decisions I was mulling over put me on autopilot. Let me give you some backstory. My wife Donna and I were newly married and had a sweet little 18-month-old daughter. I had a job I liked and Donna stayed home with the baby. We had a nice apartment in a quiet little town and our friends and families were close by. It really couldn't be better. When you're young, however, even when things are going well for you, the future knocks on your chamber door. But like, what, what are we going to be doing in five years? Ten years, maybe. There's no resting on your laurels because guess what? You don't even have any yet. You have to earn your stripes and you don't do that by standing still. We married during the Christmas break in our junior year of undergrad and as I said, I lucked out and at graduation landed a decent job. Since we had a baby early in our marriage, the future was right there in front of us, banging on that door, you know, medical stuff, education, all that grown-up, responsible business. How much would I have to make to keep a roof over our heads? We wondered what grad school would do in terms of earning power. Where I worked, people with advanced degrees were earning twice and a half what I was pulling in. I thought it might be cool to break into that groove. But we decided that since things were good, why mess it up? We couldn't afford school anyway. So that's going to have to be a story for another day. Now let me age myself. We both went back to watching Laugh-In. Mm -hmm, remember? Maybe not. <laughs> Soon thereafter, I learned that my employer was eager to polish its profile by having more staff on board with advanced degrees. I suppose it was a ploy to attract investors. Anyway, to accomplish this, they were actually offering an opportunity for selected employees to score a stipend and that would enable doing grad school while still earning a salary. Of course, my wheels started spinning, so I called Donna and we talked about it. And in all of about a five-minute deep dive, we decided game on. Have I mentioned grown-up responsibility? Hmm. What is it with youth, anyway? Long story short, I applied for the stipend and was accepted. Donna and I went on to compare programs, locations, and finances. The whole bowl of wax. It'd be tight, but we could make it work. I guess tight. <laughs> tight.
may not adequately describe our situation. Usual expenses were manageable. Extraneous things posed a problem, like applications to graduate programs. To afford the application fees, uh, I know this is ridiculous sounding as I'm saying it, but to afford these fees, we had to pawn our beloved musical instruments. Very, very hurtful experience. We found a pawn shop in South Philly that provided us enough to apply to the two programs that appealed to us. I can remember the pawn shop experience like it was yesterday. It emitted an aura of desperation, dissolution somehow. That was a gray, gray day for us both, but not for naught, because fortunately I was accepted at both places I applied. I chose the program I felt was the most relevant and comprehensive. It'd be at a university about a thousand miles from our current location, and contemplating the move and all was, geez, that was just so exciting back then. I'd also have a two-year work commitment upon graduation, thereby stretching the uncertainty of a job for an additional two years. This was all aces. No worries there. There was also a contractual requirement that grades remain within a certain range or the plug would be pulled on the whole enchilada. Any funds expended by the company would be charged to me directly. Our finances as a new family were stretched as it was and really it should have precluded the adventure but I was determined. At the very least I had no business dragging my wife and daughter to suffer along with me. These more mature and rational considerations occurred to me long after the train had left the proverbial station. It was the 60s and the hippie movement was in full gear. Rejecting norms and traditions was de rigueur. Things were also dynamic and exciting. Who needed money? Love and awareness were the capital of the day. Though love and flower power were blooming, there was much discord in the country. We were at war. Vietnam was raging. JFK and his brother Robert were assassinated, along with Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, and Martin Luther King. The country was in turmoil. Times were surely a-changing, but underneath there was a sense of optimism. Back to poor planning and the optimism of youth. Donna's parents, they weren't into all that. They hated me. No wonder. Under the circumstances, I might have hated me, too. They were uncertain about their daughter marrying a guy who only worked in the summertime, right? Student, all that good stuff. Donna's forebears worked in the trades and made handsome incomes. The family's occupational trajectory didn't somehow include college and that sometime work routine. Our lifestyle was totally foreign to them. And now, after working only a couple of years after graduation, their favorite son-in-law was heading back guess what, for more school. Another jewel in my crown. Their point was not well taken at the time, but in retrospect, their concern made sense. Turns out maintaining a family requires more than love and social awareness. It helps, it's good, but it also requires U.S. dollars. As so often happens, these lessons are learned in process. Planning ahead was for the squares, you know, the people with good judgment. While the sizable contingent of love children were heading to Woodstock, we were doing what Horace Greeley suggested. We were heading west. The uni had a collection of apartments for grad students with families. We were expecting something cozy in a nice neighborhood. 
You know, like the ones you see in the four-color brochures that colleges send out to prospective students. Speaking of blooms off roses, this was not the same Eden from which we recently booted ourselves. This was not some ideal academic enclave. The neighborhood wasn't, well, I guess it wasn't terrible. I had seen worse. I had lived in worse. But the house was really pretty dumpy. As is typical in these situations, an absentee landlord's neglect placed the burden of timely repairs and maintenance on the shoulders of renters. Fortunately, my earlier job experiences came in handy and I was able to remedy most of the small stuff. Other things were more momentous, like when major appliances fell apart. You know, the washing machine's usually the first thing to go, right? Or the fridge. Hmm. <laughs> that would require a lot more serious iron. Costs were far more than we'd anticipated, and our savings account hemorrhaged money in our move and reload to the new digs. My appreciation of the need for adequate financial resources was rudely awakening me. It prompted me, in fact, to revisit the provisions of the contract with my employer. As I mentioned, they were bankrolling this whole operation. The hammer over my head was the bailout provision. The possibility of having to repay the company thousands of dollars was just as scary as hell. An apt script for my recurring 2 o'clock in the morning episodes of Midnight of the Soul. Fortunately, Donna was more of an optimist. A gift of the young is optimism and resilience. With Donna's positive spirit, we made the best of our situation. We discovered much about ourselves. And we grew immensely in the experience. Our daughter was such a positive force and her joy and exuberance were a tonic for both of us. So, where was I? Oh yeah, the evening I want to tell you about started normally enough. My wife and daughter and me at the dinner table discussing the sweet mundanities of our lives. Sometimes we're wise enough to realize how fragile our place in this universe might be and realize all that matters to you could be yanked from your grasp in a sec. Like this place in time. Being at this table with them, my preoccupation with tonight's statistics class and getting the results from last week's test, well, that caused my thoughts to drift and I sometimes barely heard what Donna and our daughter were saying. Then, time to go. Kiss, kiss, see you later, see you after class, and off I went. It has often been said that timing is everything. In the opening weeks of our research and stats class, it became painfully clear to me that this was not the right time for me to be taking this frickin' course. Actually, I thought that never would have been the right time, if only I had a choice. You've heard of ESL? English as a second language? Well, this was RMDM. Research Methods as a Destroyer of Minds. In all honesty, our prof was super. All props to him. He was widely published and, in fact, world-renowned. He was erudite, world-wise, and fortunately, extremely patient. He explained concepts up, down, and around. It really wasn't him. It was us. This evening was to provide evidence as to how much I personally didn't know. Theoretically, it's good to gain awareness of knowledge gaps, right? Wouldn't you think? Not so much in reality. It was like one of those Zen cones like the master asking, Grasshopper, is it possible to know how stupid you are if you're stupid to begin with? Answer, yes, master. Watch as I demonstrate. No kidding. Well, tonight was the big reveal. 
the results of our first big test. As the professor started handing out our graded tests, a sadness seemed to come over him. He, he kind of, <laughs> he was awful. He said, perhaps there was something wrong with the test. We worriedly kind of like looked around at each other as he spoke. This mea culpa did not bode well. My panic was barely contained. Why was he saying what he was saying? The bottom line was, the majority of us did exceptionally poorly. Was I surprised? Well, not really. Uh Uh-uh. You know, in your heart of hearts when you bomb an exam. No, I wasn't surprised. No. I kind of thought I did poorly, but the level of poorly. Holy shit, did I even spell my name right? Oh, my God. Well, you know, I actually felt sorry that our professor questioned his ability to fashion an appropriate instrument to measure our level of understanding. The problem with the test wasn't him. Without a doubt or shred of self-pity, I believe he deserved better than us. What a group of morons, sitting there with puzzled, frightened expressions as he attempted to explain aspects of research instruments and measurement in a language that might as well have been spoken on a distant planet. It had to be very discouraging for him to look at the sea of fear and ignorance before him, a giant troop of befuddled monkeys. It turns out that three-quarters of the class failed that first test, and like me, failed it miserably. Not even close. I don't remember much of what went on after the tests were returned to us, except... except the chorus of gasps and moans involuntarily emitted by me and my classmates. No doubt the prof went out and got himself soused afterwards. After class, we all wandered in shocked silence out to our cars. The imitation gas lights along the walkways painted a yellowish hue to the surround. The late October night air was cold and damp, and armies of fallen leaves skittered across the sidewalks in the parking lot. Normally, I would delight it in such an autumn scene, but tonight, doom, gloom, and hopelessness. The lot of us must have looked like zombies as we shuffled in shock to our cars. I was terrified. I was terrified. First, I had to go home to my wife and inform her what a loser I was. It was so much easier when I was a little kid and failed a test. All that happened was that the old man get pissed and boot me in the ass and send me to bed. Easy peasy. This was failure on a whole new level. I had never failed a test of this magnitude anyway in my life. This event was out of my realm of experience, a total fiasco. I was ashamed And I imagined how Donna would look at me when I got home, first with shock, because she actually had the impression that I was bright. Then pity, followed by a rapid degradation to disgust. With lightning speed, I built a complex hysterical scenario. This all was fueled by a cascade of guilt and shame. The only way out I could consider was for me to disappear. What to do? How will I ever be able to pay my company the money I'm about to owe them after I fail out? How will Donna and my daughter survive? And then I realized I had taken the route home via East Harbor Drive. 
I guess the implosion in my head led me here. I was more desperate than I could have imagined. I kept thinking, exit strategy, exit strategy. It occurred to me that I had a decent life insurance policy, and I thought that if I died before I failed out of school, Donna wouldn't be responsible to pay anything. Hmm, possible, but who knew? What do I know? This is the first time I've ever thought of anything like this. At this point, it sounded good anyway. Only problem was that I thought, well, I heard that if you suicided and the insurance company caught you, well, right, I mean, it's too late for them, but they wouldn't have to pay the benefit. Hmm, all kinds of complications. I can't even kill myself without leaving more bullshit of my own making for my little family to contend with. I considered driving off the harbor bridge and into the goddamn filthy polluted river. And I wondered what would happen if I failed and only managed to break a leg or something and wreck the goddamn car in the process. Icing on the cake would result in me being fished out of the water and sent to a loony bin for attempting suicide. <laughs> no good. Bad plan. Bad. At least I was planning. Then he caught my eye. Out of nowhere, standing on the side of the road in the gloom, with wisps of fog swirling around, a figure dressed in an army BDU fatigue coat. Hmm. Was he trying to hitch a ride? I slowed to get a better look. I could barely make out what he looked like. He had his jacket pulled up, you know, to cover his chin. It was pretty cold out, and a black stocking cap pulled way down over his forehead. There was something about this guy that sent a shiver through me. The feature I could make out was his eyes. Piercing eyes that drilled through you. You'd have to be crazy or to have a death wish to pick this guy up. What? Wait a minute, what's that? A what? Bingo! It came to me in a rush. There were reports of armed robberies in our area. Could this be the guy? Well now. I chuckled. Things were finally looking up. Am I looking at my ticket out? I worked out a scenario in my head. I pick him up. He pulls a weapon and tells me, pull over. I pull over into a thicket. He wants my money. I tell him to go screw himself. He sticks the gun in my ribs. I resist. We struggle. The gun goes off. Voila. Genius. Problem solved. Now to work. So, I stopped, leaned across the seat, and rolled down the window. I shouted out to him, Hey, where are you going? He muttered something, but I couldn't make out what he said. It really didn't matter anyway. I told him to get in. I pulled back onto East Harbor and he started to speak. This could be it. This could be it. But he didn't pull out a weapon or tell me to pull over. He said, what's going on, man? I snapped out of my reverie and asked, what do you mean? He chuckled and said, no college boy who ain't in some kind of shit be picking up the likes of me. What kind of trouble you in, boy, running? I thought, what the frig is this? I was on the edge, and I blurted out, nothing's up. He said, that's bullshit, man, tell me. Now I was stunned. Who the hell was this guy? I, I snapped, what are you talking about? And what the hell do you care anyway? Nothing's up. He growled, bullshit. Then he insisted. Raising his voice, he demanded, tell me. 
My exit plan was taking a major turn south. This guy's attitude was starting to scare me. So much for my resolve, right? And his bold insistence shook me out of myself. I have no idea who he is. I'm sitting next to him, and it's so dark I couldn't even tell you what he looked like. I thought, if he wants to know, I'll tell him. Who gives a shit what he thinks? So I told him the whole sordid tale, except, of course, the part about hoping he'd rob and murder me. I told him about failing my first test in grad school. I sounded like such a sissy wimp that I'd probably be failing out of school and I had to tell my wife and if she had any sense, she'd probably leave me and take our daughter and go back home to her parents who hated me in the first place. I'd be paying back my employer for the rest of my frickin' miserable life and I'd be humiliated. Mr. Smartass, crawling home with my tail between my legs and everybody'd know for certain what a loser I was. I was shaken as I drove, barely taking a breath, and after my denouement, we both were silent for a long minute. He was staring straight ahead and was first to speak. What? What, are you a fortune teller? I said, what? He went on, you can't know the future. What happened, happened. Shit like this happens. I started to protest. Yeah, but he said, listen to me. Stop it. Stop what you're doing. I said, yeah, but what about, he interrupted, what about what? You have this whole miserable scenario painted in your head because of one bad shot. You have to figure out what you have to do to get right with your thinking, man. It's a goddamn course. Do you think anybody in the world but you gives a shit about this course? Get real. And you can't do anything about it tonight anyway, right? Go home. Go home. Tell your wife you love her. Tell her what happened. Tomorrow, take your wife and your little girl over to the zoo. Even graduate students can afford to go to the zoo. It's free. My head was spinning. This guy was screwing up my plan. And he seemed to know my thoughts. I said, what the hell? I said, well, yeah, I hear you and all, but what if he said, listen to me, listen to me. What ifs don't work. What is, does. Love your wife and your kid, man. That kid would love you if you had an eye in the middle of your forehead. It's there waiting for you. That's what's important. That's real. Figure out this grad school bullshit with your lady. Together. After all, for good or bad, you're all locked in this together now, right? Listen, man, give yourself a break. It'll work out. I promise you. You'll see. Oh, by the way, I know what you're up to on Cold Harbor. I know. I tried to interrupt. What? How? What? He said, stop. By now, you know I know, right? So just stop. He went on, just try to understand you're as precious to those two at home as they are to you. If you pull the plug, all will pay, not just you. I didn't know what to say. I looked over at the guy. I still couldn't see him very well, only by the lights of passing cars. I said, I think what you said makes sense. He said, I know it makes sense. We stopped at the light on Holton, and he said, don't you have to turn here? I turned to look at him, so I started to, how the hell did he interrupt it and said, I'm headed over to the west side. You can dump me out here. I said, sure, and gosh, I just don't know what to say. Thanks so much for letting me vent. I feel kind of embarrassed for opening up like that. He said, don't be. That's why I'm here. As he opened the door, the overhead light lit up his face, and for the first time I was able to see what he looked like. Such kindness emanated from him. His eyes at once pierced but infused, genuinely hard to describe the effect, but it was really pretty powerful. He smiled and said, don't forget this. Waste your chances. 
ever hear of the Gordian knot? And I kind of like looked at him blankly. He says, you're the rope. I'm the sword. Now I pass the sword to you. I said, what? He laughed and said, ah, just think about it. He climbed out and closed the door behind him. He stepped onto the sidewalk. I looked after him to wave, but he was gone. Just as suddenly as he appeared, Fifteen-minute exchange I'll remember for the rest of my life. Do you see what I mean? Strange things happen when you least expect them. Who was the hitchhiker? What did he mean when he said, I know what you were up to, and that's why I'm here? A complete stranger sitting there in Jack's dark car. How could he possibly know that Jack had nefarious intentions when he picked him up on that forbidding stretch of Cold Harbor. You've been listening to Tales from Second Street with Doug Scott. If you enjoyed what you hear, please connect with us at Doug at TalesFromSecondStreet.com. It's a little tricky, so let me spell it. Doug at Tales from 2ND Street. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, this is Doug Scott. Take care of yourselves.